Welcome to Tomball Bible Church. My name is Skeet. I'm the senior pastor here. It's my pleasure to open God's Word with you this morning. Uh, we're continuing a series that we jumped into called Upstream. And today, we want to talk about how we engage as Christians with our government. What is the role of government and what is the role of individuals in response to that? And, and with that being our topic, we wanted to do something. We've got a couple of patrol officers here from uh, Tomball Police Department with us. I want to ask you guys uh, just wave back there. If you're here today and you are a law enforcement official of any kind, would you stand up along with these officers so that we can say thank you to you if you're a law enforcement official? We are uh, thankful for the service that you render to our community. We know that it's a difficult one. We know that there's a lot of scrutiny around what you guys do. And we just wanted to say thank you. And we wanted to pray for you and your families this morning. And so I would ask each of you guys to join me in praying for for these officers and their families. And for more broadly, uh, the police and FBI, all the various law enforcement officials that serve our community uh, today. Would you guys pray with me? Father God, we thank you for these officers here today. We thank you, Lord, for the service that they render to our community. Lord, we know that it's a difficult one, that it's an often, often a thankless task. And we just want to today thank you in your grace to us that you have called men and women to stand and to protect and serve. Uh, to answer the phone when we are in our moments of greatest need, and to put their lives often at risk so that we might be safe. Lord, we pray for you to both guide and guard these officers. We prayed for you to guide them as they interact in difficult circumstances with the public, that you'd give them wisdom and grace and discernment to navigate what's often a hard situation. And Lord, we pray that you'd guard them, that you'd bring them home each day safely to their families, that you would guard their spouses' and children's minds and free them from anxiety and fear, that their service would continue to be a joy. And Lord, we thank you again. We pray for your protection and provision for these families who give up so much to serve. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys for doing that. Guys, Tom Alpedi, thank you guys again for coming and for all that you all do. We appreciate you. Um. So we wanted to jump into the discussion of government and discussion of what it is as what it is right and biblical for us as Christians as we approach our government. The reason we want to do that is because as we begin kind of this political season, uh, conversations get interesting, uh, they get heated, and the church is supposed to be different and to play by different rules. And so God has called us to be above the fray in some of these conversations. And we wanted to kind of dig into what the government is, how we should view it, and how we should respond to our government. And we begin with this, is that as with anything we've seen in this Upstream series, there are false views that get propagated. Ideas that are not based in truth that gain traction and notoriety. And, and there are three that, in studying this issue, I think are prevalent. Three false views that we need to kind of uproot before we can begin to plant what is good and true. And, and the first is this, is that our government is somehow our enemy. You know, this viewpoint used to be really just a fringe group. 
Uh, you had to wear aluminum foil hats uh, to be a part of this team, and that was generally to keep you away from any rays that you thought the government might use to infiltrate your brain. And that seemed to be quite strange until we found out the NSA was actually reading our email. Um, but on a serious note, uh, we all know, if we'll sit back and be rational, that the government isn't against us. Now, there are different versions of this story, uh, depending upon where you grew up and what segment of the population you might be a part of. And so the government has different boogeymans, depending upon your background. For some people, it's the president. For others, it's the Department of Justice. Or uh, you might say the local police might be your boogeyman. For other people, they might have issues with the EPA or the IRS. You pick it, and depending upon your background, you might have a different one. Uh, But the reality is, when we step back, we know that that's not true. We know that in the United States of America, our government isn't out to get us. And there's a simple test that we can determine whether or not we truly believe that. And so I want you to imagine something for a moment with me. It's 3 a.m. And you're at home, which is where you should be at 3 a.m. And you're asleep. And there's a pounding noise outside one of the windows. And of course... If you're like me, you're asleep, and so your wife wakes you up to tell you that this is happening. Now, at that split moment where you realize there's someone outside of your house banging and jarring, trying to break into your home, what do you do? Now, in other parts of the country, there's a singular answer to that, but we're in Texas, and so there's a couple responses. Um, So let me tell you how I think that plays out at the Alderson home. I go quickly to the bedside gun safe and I pull out a handgun and Leisha grabs a phone. And she's going to call three numbers. 911. And someone's going to pick up the phone and they're going to find out what the emergency is and as quickly as possible they're going to route police officers there. Now because it's our house and we're in Texas they should probably send a coroner along with them because that might be where this thing is heading if a guy breaks through the door. Now, if you're in the camp that at the moments of greatest fear and most significant need, you call the government to ask for help, we've answered that question. Do we believe our government is ultimately our enemy? Well, if we call them at our moment of greatest need and we expect them to come and help, we right away know how we view them. We expect that our government will be there to protect and defend us. And we believe that they will when we need them to. The rest is just kind of rhetoric that people will throw around. And God has blessed us that here in the United States of America, when we need help, our police, our government shows up and helps. Beyond that, the scriptures say that really our enemies are not really people. That the people who who do certain things and have certain roles, they're they're never our enemy. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, the scriptures say, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities. And right there, if you're kind of on that fringe nut thing, you say, I told you it's rulers and authorities, but you have to keep reading. Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So our enemies in this world are not people. Our enemies in this world are spiritual forces, not political forces, in heavenly places, not Washington, D.C. 
So we have to dispel this myth and we have to address the lie that in some segments of the population exists that our government is out to get us. The reality is that for the most part, our government is made up of flawed people just like me and you doing the best they can, just like me and you. So it isn't perfect, but they're not the enemy. The the second myth or lie that gets propagated that is on the other end of the extreme and is equally dangerous is that the government is our hope. So while other people might look at the government as the enemy, this group looks to the government to solve their problems. That if the government would just do this, then my problem would go away. Well, the government's not here to solve your problems per se. And there's different perspectives on this. If you have a liberal political ideology, you might look to the government for some form of social salvation, that that all the injustices in society will be corrected. If you're more on the conservative front, you might look to the government to solve moral problems or economic problems. And what you see indicating this to be the reality with someone is they begin to overhype their political candidate. And they begin to believe that if my guy were elected, all of these problems would go away. Because he's told us he's going to save us. So we're in the middle of a presidential election cycle. It starts early these days. It's like Christmas in July. So you'll have plenty of time until the actual vote happens to decide who you want to vote for, to get tired of them and dislike them before they even get elected. So we've just sped up the process. So here's what's going to happen. You're going to hear this. You're already hearing it. If I'm elected president, the first day in office I'm going to And whatever that is, it consists of signing some documents. So if I'm elected president on day one, I'm going to sign an executive order that says this, this, and this. And I want you to understand that guy's probably going to keep that promise because it's relatively easy to sign documents. Most of us can do that with great efficiency. Here's the problem. Signing documents fundamentally doesn't change anything about the United States of America. So that guy may do what he has said he will do, but in the end, he will accomplish very little on his own. Because that elected official is not a savior. He's a man or a woman. But he can't solve all of our problems, even though he'll tell you he can, even though he's got a plan for how he will. He cannot save us. We can't look to him to fix all of our problems expecting that if just the right guy were in office, everything would be made right. That's not how it works. And I've got a guy I'd like to be in office, and I think he's better than the current guy and better than some of the other people that are running. But in the end, he's a guy. And he's going to do his best, and he's going to fall short. And one of the problems with this perspective, when we look to these people to be our saviors, we turn on them when they can't deliver. Here's one great illustration of that. If you were to look today at the presidential approval ratings, they are incredibly low, around 30%. Now, you would think that the president has one political ideology and the majority of the Congress has a different ideology. So these guys don't agree with one another. So Basic reasoning might be to say, if the president is unpopular, then you would expect Congress to be popular because they disagree. The problem is the congressional approval rating is even lower. The only thing that's universal in American politics is that we're all frustrated. And the reason we are is because we bought into these lies that were sold to us that if we elect the right guy, 
He'll fix everything. Reality is he won't because he can't. And when he fails to deliver or she fails to deliver, we end up jaded by the whole thing, expecting nothing to happen. And that's because we've put too much hope in a political leader. The scriptures are clear. There is one savior and he is not running for president. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, when the apostles are drugged before leaders of their day, they say this, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's one Savior, and his name is Jesus, and he's not running for office. And anybody who offers you salvation, anyone who offers you the ability to solve all your problems is ultimately not telling you the truth, even though they might be well intended. And to look to your government to do what only your Lord can do is just foolish. It robs God of his glory and it destroys your faith in your government. So that's the second false belief. The third is this, is that government should be used as a means for advancement. And we see this. This happens when people run for office so that they can get wealth and power. All the way back in the scriptures, we had examples of this with a tax collector named Zacchaeus. People who believed that government office was a good means of getting ahead. Now, it's interesting to me because of the way this is twisted in American society. And and so I want to just caution you about this. this There are people who have gained for themselves wealth and power by criticizing and vilifying those people that have wealth and power. Anyone who does that, you should immediately distrust. Any really rich, powerful man or woman who talks all day about how evil, wealthy, powerful people are should be distrusted. One, they just told you not to trust them. But two, it's obvious they're playing a game, and that's the game that we're seeing play out in front of us. People are getting into what would generally be viewed as a service position so that they can promote themselves. But it's not only officials that do that. It's what we do often when we step into the ballot box. We vote not based upon a perspective of the common good, but rather based upon what it means to us and more specifically our pocketbook. And I want to give you just a natural example of how this plays out. We've talked about this a few weeks ago. I believe based upon strong biblical instruction that it is a necessity and call of the church to fight for the protection of unborn children. Now, I'm going to go into a voting booth. And I'm going to make a decision about who I'd like to be, a senator, a congressman, a president. And that's not the only issue we talk about. See, we're also going to talk about economics, right? And and here's the reality, though. As a Christian, as I look at what the Scriptures would tell me, I I would have to say that, that protecting the life of an unborn has greater weight biblically than maximizing the American GDP and growing the economy. And if these two are in conflict, as a Christian, I've got to have a biblical set of priorities. So if I have two candidates in front of me and one I believe will be great economically and the other I believe might actually help stem the tide of unborn children killed in our country, I'm going with the guy who's bad on the economy and good for the birth of babies. Because I have to make 
a choice. And the problem is most people who are professing evangelical Christians, if you look at voting patterns, we don't really vote that way. In fact, there, there's a saying among political activists and campaign managers that, that's prevalent right there. It's all about the economy, stupid. Every other conversation is secondary and on the side because everything is driven by the pocketbook. And we can't afford to make decisions that way. We've got to make decisions about what is good and best, not just for us personally, not just for our investment portfolio, but what is right collectively. So viewing the government as a means of getting advanced is not just something that government officials do. It's something that every one of us is tempted to do and is based upon a false premise. Well, the scripture would respond to that and say that we should lay down our preferences for the good of another. And so we have these three false views. One, that the government is our enemy and the scriptures are clear. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. One, that the, two, that the government will save us when only Jesus can. And three, that the government is our means of advancement when the Scriptures would tell us to lay down our preferences for another. So those are some lies that are floating around out there. The question then that really kind of has to come out of this now that we've uprooted what isn't true is what should be there. What's the role of government and how should Christians respond to their government? There's two important scriptures that I want us to look at this morning to answer that question. First, we'll look at Romans chapter 13, and then we'll look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Romans chapter 13, verse 1, will begin. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Now, I would like you to turn to First Peter chapter 2 with me as well. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, the Scriptures come alongside what we just heard in Romans 13 and say, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Now these two texts provide for us really the foundation of understanding what the government's role and responsibility is, and as the Christian, how we should respond to the government that God has placed over us. And we need to begin with this basic understanding that governments are instituted by God. 
and they are established by God, and they have the right to rule because God has given it to them. Now, this may sound like a basic kind of statement. We just read it. They're instituted by God, but it's actually quite contradictory to what most of us believe. You see, built into most of our understandings of government is the belief system that government gets its right to govern from the consent of the governed. I want to go back. We believe in America that government gets its right to govern from the consent of the governed. That is not what Romans 13 just said. It's not what 1 Peter just said. It says that the government exists because God has established it. God has placed them there. So we have to start understanding that. Now, from there, the question is, for those who are ruling, why has God established them? What is their responsibility before God? And how will they give an accounting before God based upon what? Well, this is it. They exist as a means of God's common grace, the government does, to establish and protect its people and allow for the common good to actively bless the righteous and the diligent and to punish the wicked. That is the role of government. Theologians in going through this and in talking about the reality that God has given them the sword have identified three functions of government here. The first is that they bear the sword of justice, which means that the government is responsible to punish criminals. To fight crime by arresting and appropriately judging those who break the law. The second is that the government has been given the sword of order to thwart rebellion, disorder, and anarchy. That God desires for there to be a structured and ordered society and that the government exists to establish and maintain that. And third, the government has been given the sword of war. That governments are responsible to protect their citizens from foreign threats. So when there's an attack, the government must, by its obligation, go out and defend its people. And if you were to look at all of these things and summarize the role of government in the Scripture and what God has established the government to do is to build and create an environment where diligent and faithful people can flourish under God's common grace where men and women can go through their lives without fear, where they can work and enjoy the fruits of their labor and build a life for them and their children. That is the role of a government. Now, it's important that we understand that and that God will hold all officials ruling according to that when they give an account to him. It's also important that we understand the difference between what God has called individual Christians to do in relationships and what God has commanded governments to do. Because sometimes, if we don't understand that distinction, we begin to have strange ideas. Let me give you some examples. If someone were to break into our home and steal our refrigerator, first, I'd be quite impressed with them. They went big. And the government were to track them down because they tried to sell it at the pawn shop, and the serial numbers are there. If that were to happen, that person would be arrested for theft, for breaking and entering, and they would have a number of charges in front of them. I would have the opportunity to go to court and to interact with that person in some way. And as a Christian, as a, guy, a person forgiven by God, my role in this relationship is to demonstrate God's forgiveness and to offer forgiveness to this person. I shouldn't harbor bitterness to them. I shouldn't go around hoping that they get put to death for this 
theft that cost me 1500 bucks or so, I should forgive them. That's what God has called me to do. But the government has a different responsibility. The government and the court system is responsible to ensure that justice is administered. So while I am responsible to demonstrate forgiveness, the judge is responsible to administer justice. He is not there to just pretend it didn't happen because order must be maintained in society so that people can go about their lives and enjoy living them if they are faithful and diligent people. So the government has one role and the individual Christian plays another. It's important that we understand those distinctions. If someone punches me in the face, it's not a good idea biblically for me to hit back. Jesus actually says, if someone slaps you, you turn the other cheek. So being a forgiving and gracious person is important. If another country invades a country, it's appropriate for the military to be dispatched to address that act of aggression because we have different responsibilities at that moment. As an individual, I want to display the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But operating as a government official, I have a responsibility before God to care, protect, and defend the people that I am responsible for from all enemies, foreign and domestic. I want you to see the distinction because we begin to get a little wonky as we look at issues of policy if we don't understand that governments have one role and individuals have another and God holds us accountable. So with that said, I want to ask the question, what do we do in response to our government? I want to begin with this. There's a primary goal that we start from, and we just read that in 1 Peter chapter 2. But I want to ask you to turn back there. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, it says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or governors, as those sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. Because any time... You're reading the scripture and you see this is the will of God. What comes next should be underlined. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Think about that. Our primary goal in interacting with our government is to live our lives in such a way that our good citizenship will glorify Jesus and silence the critics of the church. We begin with that primary goal in mind. And from there, I think we can process down a few things that we would say every Christian is responsible before God in their relationship with their government. And the first is simply this. Number one, obey the law. Even if you don't like it, even if it seems unreasonable, obey the law. Now, we say that, and for most of us, most of the time we follow the law until we get in our cars. And so between here and 249, there's this cut through I use. And the marked speed limit on this desolate stretch of road is 30 miles an hour. And it's just foolish. It should be 45. And the reason it should be 45 is that's what I would typically drive down that road. It's also what one of the nice officers from the Tomball Police Department clocked me driving on that road. And I want you to understand something about the good servants from Tomball PD. They will give you a ticket, even if you're a pastor, after church on Sunday when it's Mother's Day. And guess what? If you're going 45 and a 30, 
and you get pulled over, you have no reason to complain. You pay the ticket, and you move on and try to remember every time you go through there, it's not 45, it's not 45, it's not 45. We should obey the law. The only time Christians should break the law, for the most part, is if it's an accident. And we should pay our fee, whatever it is, without complaint. We need to obey the law. That's part of living a quiet life as good citizens so that our Lord is honored. Second, we should pay our taxes. Jesus said so. Render to Caesar what is Caesar. But I don't like the tax code. I know. Pay your taxes. I, I don't think the graduate income tax is, is constitutional. This is the Bible. Pay your taxes. If you don't like them, get new people to go up there and change them. Good luck with that. We've been talking about it for years. It's not happening. But that's our job. We shouldn't be tax evaders. We shouldn't protest the income tax on religious basis. That's straight disobedience to Jesus who has said, pay your taxes. We shouldn't bother us to seek the common good in that way. Third, and this is where it gets harder, because the first two, obey the law and paying taxes, is about what we do. right? That, that's, that's an activity, that's a behavior. Number three moves beyond that to how we do it, and we show honor to our government. Show honor. See, it's one thing for me to simply obey the law. It's another thing for me to honor the officials that God has placed in these positions of authority, particularly if I don't like them. And and I'll say this, as a conservative evangelical Christian, this is a spot that I think many of us struggle with. And if you're on social media, you know this. Look at your Facebook page. And, and, And I want you to look at the tone of the politically based comments. And I want you to just ask, is this showing honor? You see, as Christians, we can disagree with people. We can believe what they're saying is not true. But we have to do it in an honorable way. Because we don't play by the rules of the world. The world calls names and dishonors people. We're called to honor them. And I know that's difficult when you really can't stand what someone is doing. But that's the calling we have. We show honor. Even on our social media page, we show honor. This is beyond behavior beyond and, and towards our attitude. The fourth thing that we do is we pray. We pray for our officials and those authorities over us. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, the Scriptures instruct us this way. It says, First of all, then I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. And I want you to see this prayer for our officials has got two motives behind it. One, that we would live a quiet life. And it goes back to this primary goal of our interaction with our government, is that we would honor the Lord in our Christ-like living, so that those who are opposed to the church would be silenced. We're not here to have shock and awe. We're, we're here to be salt and light. Seasoning, preserving, enlightening, supplying truth, but, but, but not to create bombshells. 
That our goal should not be uh, to get on the news and show that the war on Christians is getting worse. Our goal should be to live quiet lives of obedience to Jesus so that those who are critical of the church would be silenced. So we pray for our officials, one, that we would be allowed to do that and go about our ministry, and two, that the Lord Jesus would save them. Because if God saves and transforms those with authority and power, God might use that to transform our community. And we pray for them. And again, you go back to this, how, what's our disposition towards leaders, even though we disagree with, we show them honor and we lift them up as intercessors before the Lord, looking for their good, ultimately, that the Lord would save them. And this gets into the understanding of what the church should be and how we should interact with the world around us. Throughout Scripture, God's people are referred to as a kingdom of priests with the responsibility to serve as intercessors, to be representatives of God to the people and before God on behalf of the people. And so we pray and we live in honor to other people to represent Jesus and to draw people near to Jesus, pleading with the Lord on their behalf. That's our calling. Now, this is where things get sticky because when we say, well, what if our government is ungodly? Surely there's an opt-out to some of this. And I want to lead with this because I found out in the first service this is the most controversial statement of the day. So we're going to go with this first rather than the end. The first thing I would tell you is when you don't like your government is what you can't do. Romans chapter 13 is clear. Be subject to the authorities of over you. Now I want you to understand, this is written in a time where the church is persecuted. So what you cannot do is under any circumstance rebel against your government. The Bible does not give any circumstance in which a Christian is permitted to do that. Now I know for us as Americans, we go, well wait a minute, that's kind of what we did. I know. And I think it's worked out pretty well for us. But in the end, each Christian man that joined the army to fight against their country was disobeying Romans chapter 13. And I'm not saying that to stir anything. I just want to have clarity on that issue. Romans chapter 13, written in a time of persecution, says, Be subject to the authorities over you. So we begin with that. We don't have the right to rebel against our government. And some of you were like, well, man, I wanted to. I know. Number one. All right. So what do we do? The first is that we obey as far as as obeying does not cause us to disobey God. We obey our government to the point that obeying them would be disobeying God. You see this? With the apostles, they're drawn before the leaders of the day. They're commanded not to preach in the name of Jesus. And they say, who should we listen to, you or God? And they keep preaching. You see this in the life of Daniel, where he's disobedient to the rulers over him because they tell him he can't pray and honor the Lord, and he's going to. You see it with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're told to bow down and worship the idol of gold, and they refuse, and they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And I want you to understand... Each of these men not only was willing to disobey their government in order to obey their God, they also were willing to endure the penalty for it. So first we obey, unless obeying our government means disobeying our God. Second, we suffer if we must. Third, we pray 
some more. We just pray harder, more for our government, for our leaders, and for our officials. Fourth, we can participate in the process. We can vote and organize and run for office. We have a lot of options in front of us. And they've got to be built around this understanding that God has ordained this government and He has placed us here with this purpose, that as the church we would be different and distinct from the way the world interacts with the government. That we wouldn't expect the government to save us and we wouldn't retaliate in hatred against them, but this is what we do. We'd obey and honor our ruling authorities in such a way that those who were critical of the Lord Jesus would be silenced because of our good citizenship. And that we show an unwavering obedience to Jesus when it's difficult and we endure hardship if we must, but we're faithful to Him. And the Scriptures would say that if we do that, we shine as a light in the midst of of a dark world. And our goal before anything else has to be to honor Jesus above all. Let's pray to Him. Father God, we thank You that You are a good and loving God, that You have established human government over us. Father, we thank You that here in America for years that government for the most part has been good and just, not perfect, But we have been blessed and we thank you. Father, I pray that you would help us in humility as your people uh, to honor our government. To speak truth where truth needs to be proclaimed, but to do it in respect and honor. And in the midst of that, we pray that in doing so, that you would strengthen us. Father, because I know this is difficult. I know this isn't our natural response when we're frustrated at the direction things seem to be going. And so I pray that you, by your Spirit, would enable us to move beyond just a natural response to a Spirit-led response. That we might honor your Son in all things. And that he would be lifted up in our country through a faithful movement of the men and women of God. In Jesus' name, amen.